Oh, Lord God, as you have spoken through your word down through the ages, so we pray that your spirit would speak through your word again, that hearts and minds would be turned toward you, that we would see and, and, and know that you are good, that your loving kindness is everlasting, that you are the God who does not change. And because of that, we are alive. Lord, we pray that as we uh, reflect upon your words for us, spoken through Malachi, that your spirit would be at work within us, making us alive, quickening our hearts to follow you. We pray this in the name of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Two weeks ago, as we we ended chapter two of Malachi, we, we ended on a rather glum note, as it were. Uh, it, it's verse 17, it's the one we started with this morning, and, and it says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Now, my contention both through Amos in the fall and, and through Malachi now is that God speaks to us through his word and that as God spoke to a, you know, the Old Testament prophets, that word still remains valid for us. As we think of that and as we think of this verse where Malachi is describing the situation where people call evil good and that the Lord delights in those who practice evil and then to ask where is the God of justice I'm not sure we can come up with a, a more fitting description for our life today we certainly you know, live in times where, where truth is at best confused but more often abandoned we, we live in a time where what is wrong or what is right seems commonplace and or, sorry what is wrong seems commonplace and what is right seems alien it's the day that reflects Malachi 2:17 but we also recognize that in in Malachi's day this verse happens to fall in context and the context of the verse is that the people have sinned and through the first two chapters of Malachi, there are three primary discourses that talk about the sins of the people. The first is that the people, they don't understand how the Lord has loved them. They, they, they don't have a right understanding, a right knowledge of the Lord and, and what he has done for them. And the second, their worship is broken, to put it mildly. They're not honoring the Lord as they should in worship. And, in, and then in the third... It deals specifically with marriage and the ways in which the, the people are sinning in their behavior and the way in which that sinful behavior results in bad worship, a, a bad relationship with the Lord. So we see that there are, there are three kind of discourses or, or sections where the prophet speaks to the people of his day. And if we add it all up, verse 17 is the total. 
that the people have wearied the Lord. Now, as we think about that, we need to understand that this, doesn't, this isn't the sort of weariness that we get at the end of a long day. Right? It, as though the Lord were not physically up to the challenge of leading Israel. That, that's not what, what we're talking about. But rather, it, it's a description that the Lord's patience has been tried and his limit is approaching. And if we think about that, and if we're, we're thinking about the Old Testament, we recognize that this sort of um, relationship happens throughout. That, that Israel and the Lord are going along, and Israel sins, and then the Lord brings them back, and chastens them, or, or reproves them, but then brings them back, and then they sin, and, and there's this kind of this, this fluctuation. And the, the steps of this are described for us in Deuteronomy 28. There all the people of God are assembled. And, and Moses says, you know, you're going to do this, sin, which is sin. And then the Lord's going to respond in this way. And then you're going to keep doing this. And you're gonna, the Lord's going to respond. And as this, this process goes on, the consequences for the sins of the people get more and more severe. And so it, it finally comes uh, to the very end of the chapter in verse 64 and following, and this is what it says, as a result of the people's sins, when the Lord's tolerance is at an end, when he's weary, we might say. Deuteronomy says this, moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to, another, to the other end of the earth. And there, sh- and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which your f- you and your fathers have not known. Among those nations you shall find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and despair of soul. So your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you will be in dread night and day, and shall have no assurance of your life. It sounds pretty bleak. And it sound, to be honest, it's a picture of exile. And so as we begin our, our time in Malachi today, and we recognize that as a result of the sins of the people, which are ongoing through the generations, and the Lord is saying that he is wearied because of it, we might wonder if the Lord has in his thinking the intent to send them to exile. But there's a problem with that idea. The people have already been to exile. They've already been sent to a foreign land. And then they've been brought back. But the people continue to sin. So as we think about what it means that the people have wearied the Lord and and what the Lord is going to do as a result, we we then, our thoughts maybe turn to the notion that perhaps he's going to write this generation off. We know that that has happened before. We, we know with Moses and he, you know, the generation that comes out of Egypt, they get to the, the edge of the promised land and they say there be giants in them, their hills, right? They, they don't want to go. They don't trust in the Lord. And through a series of, of sequences, um, they're sent to wander in the desert for 40 years. An entire generation lost. As a pastor, I can't imagine how many funerals Moses would have done. And we could look at this and we could say, well, you know, after the book of Malachi, there's roughly 400 years of silence before the New Testament starts. So maybe that's what the Lord's doing. But I don't think that's it for two reasons. 
The first is that while no scripture is written in this time, we have documents written during this period, and it's clear that the people were looking for the Lord, and that, that God's Spirit was at work amongst those who were dwelling there, and they were eagerly anticipating a Messiah. We see evidence of this in the New Testament with uh, Simeon and Anna, right? What happens as they see Jesus as a baby? They rejoice because they've been looking for him. But we also don't think that the Lord is writing his people off or sending them into exile because, quite frankly, he tells us what he's going to do. And what he's going to do is rooted in chapter 3, verse 6, which says, Lord, uh, for, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God doesn't change. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. His loving kindness is new every morning. We need to take heart from that. Because the way that this works out in Malachi's day, which we see in the the remaining chapters, is that the Lord comes to deliver his people. Or rather, he promises to come to deliver his people. And as we think about those three topics of of trouble throughout the early part of the book, the, the things that they knew about God... Their worship of God and the things they, they did, which were all broken and askew, the Lord in coming, in redeeming his people, is going to address all three of those areas. Why? Because he's redeeming the whole person. So as we're here this morning and as we think about Malachi and, and as, as we wonder about what it... What all does this mean? One, that the Lord gets, is wearied by the people, but two, that he is the God who does not change, and that is the reason we're breathing. We begin to see his purpose to restore us, to redeem us, so that what we know, what we, what we, what we think about God, what we, what we do in our actions, and the way in which we worship the Lord are pleasing to him. So as we think about the way in which the Lord has restored his people, look with me again at chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. First notice that the Lord is going to send a messenger who's going to clear the way before him. And and we'll look at that a little bit further in time uh, this morning, Lord willing. But we see that the Lord is sending a messenger ahead of the Lord. But then note that the Lord is coming. And the Lord is going to do two primary things. The first is that he's going to clean house. And and I mean actually clean house. Uh, The the text says in verse 2 that he's going to come like a refiner's fire or like the fuller's soap. Uh, That's often translated as lye. Think of basic pH, basic detergent that's really good at eating away the fat and gross and grease and hair and all the, the bits of Drano, right? The Lord is coming like that to cleanse the people. What's the result? It, it says in the text that the result is that the house of Levi, right? The, the priests are going to be cleansed so that the offerings of the people are acceptable to the Lord again. 
the Lord is going to come and he's going to redeem his people and he's going to do that by removing the filth of sin away from the people. But he's also going to come in judgment. And we see the way in which that, that looks in these verses where he removes or he serves as a witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, the liars, those who oppress the orphan, the, the, the widow, the, who cheat the worker out of his wages, who turn away the alien. As, as we think about those sorts of, of, of folks, we also need to just understand that that's a way that the scriptures talk about those in society that are marginalized, that are pushed to the edge. So those who work iniquity and those who disregard the vulnerable, the Lord is going to come and be a witness against them. And we would add that he's a pretty awesome witness. Which means that they will not stand. So we see first that the Lord is coming and he's, he's going to cleanse the, the, the sins of the people, right? He's going to remove the sins of the people and we, we actually, if we look at those first couple chapters, we see that this kind of corresponds to the way in which people were behaving in marriage. It, it, it corresponds to the, the behaviors of the people, the things that they were doing to run away from the Lord. The Lord is going to, to cleanse the people so that they don't do that. And if they continue, he serves as a witness against them. But not only that, we see that as a result of this work, the worship of the people is acceptable to the Lord. One, and two, he calls them to worship him rightly. We see this in verses 7 through 12, right? This is where, you know, the Lord says, return to me. Now, bear in mind that this is as a result of the Lord cleansing the people. He then says, return to me. And, and the people say, well, how are we supposed to return to you? And he says, will a man rob God? As they ask about it, he says, you're robbing me. You're robbing me of tithes and offerings. And even as I say that, I, I, I think there's a little bit of the cynic in me who says, oh boy, now he's going to really press us about giving. But let's look at the, the text. Let's remember what the people were doing. We saw in chapters 1 and 2 that the people were, were not honoring the Lord by, by bringing good and right sacrifices. It looked like things out of a scratch and dent sale. It looked the, the lame, the broken, the, the diseased. That's what people were bringing to offer the Lord, which is not what they were supposed to do. Their worship was broken. So as the Lord comes and as he redeems his people, he's calling them to worship him correctly. One area of that is to tithe. It is to, to bring a tenth of, of, of what you have to the, the treasury of the Lord, to the storehouse of the Lord. And he challenges them here. He says, test me with this. Bring the whole tithe to, into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Now, we need to, to be clear on a couple things. One is, in general, we ought not put the Lord our God to the test. We see 
you know, Jesus say this to Satan, you, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But here we see that the Lord calls us to test him. And we say, okay, we will. But we also note here that the Lord is not saying you need to be giving to the storehouse to earn righteousness or to purchase the forgiveness of sins, but rather this worship of the Lord is a good and right response to the Lord's cleansing of his people. He's redeemed his people and calls them to worship, including with their tithes and their offerings. Again, corresponding to that second discourse earlier in the book, where people do not worship the Lord correctly. But what else do we see? As we read through the rest of chapter 3, we see how the Lord engages with the belief of the people. Uh, We see here um, in verse 16 that there are those who feared the Lord and the Lord gives attention to this and responds to this. And, and we see that there's this interaction between the Lord and his people now as a result of the way in which the Lord has come and has purified the people, has, has cleansed them of their sin, has called them to worship. And, and now we, we see that he's interacting with them in such a way that he says that they will be his possession and they will be spared as a father spares his son who serves him. The people know it now. And my evidence for that would be actually the very last verse of the, of the book where we see that the Lord's purpose in all, in, in, in all of this is that the hearts of fathers will be toward their children and to children to their fathers. Another way to say it is that as the Lord who calls himself the father of his people earlier in the book is, is interacting with his people, he, they begin to understand that he is their God They are his people and they are to follow him. Why? Because of the way in which he has worked to redeem them. So we see then in Malachi, the the book is laid out, we say in these three opening discourses, where they don't think rightly, where they don't worship rightly, and they don't behave rightly. But we see as the book then ends, that with the coming of the Lord, all three of those categories are addressed in reverse order. That first, their sins are forgiven, their, their deeds are refined. We see then that their worship can be restored and they understand who the Lord is. But here's the fantastic reality of all of this. It's not theoretical. It comes in time and space. This plan of action of the Lord happens. And we, we, ha- we, we read uh, about it and, and we see it in this text as well. Uh, this is Isaiah 40. The Lord says what? He's going to send his messenger 
to the people. We see it in at the beginning of chapter three. We see it then at the end of chapter four, where the Lord says that before the day of the Lord, there is going to be Elijah. Now, we, we need to instantly dismiss any notions of reincarnation. That, that's not what we mean. Rather, we mean that one is coming with the spirit of Elijah. And he's going to make straight the way of the Lord. He's going to bring the high places low and raise the low places and prepare a path for the Lord. And that doesn't mean that the Lord isn't powerful enough to do that, right? It's not that he couldn't be bothered. But rather, it's as a king who's coming and a herald is going before him proclaiming his arrival. Now, as, as we think about that, we recognize that it happened in time and space. This is John the Baptist who proclaimed the coming of the kingdom, who prepared the way of the Lord for Jesus. But as we think then about that and we, we wrestle with that, we recognize, well, hang on. There's some things in Malachi that haven't happened yet. I, I mean, we can read them. We say, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. That hasn't happened yet. Um, or, or we could say, um, you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. That hasn't happened yet. And we wonder, did something go wrong? And if that's what we're thinking, we're in good company. Because we see here in the book of Acts that Jesus' disciples felt the same thing. We see the way in which they, I mean, I can't imagine in the weeks surrounding his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, the number of, of emotional swings they would have gone on. Before he died, the, the, the elation that they were with the Messiah and that things were going well, the word of God was, was being spread at his arrest and then in his death, they just, the despondent nature. How do, how do we continue? How do we cope? Where do we go from here? And then to see him alive again and then to say, okay, we didn't really fully understand the death and resurrection bit, but you're here. And so now it's time for us to go. Let's, let's finish this thing. If, if the messengers come and the Lord has come and, and, and our sins are forgiven, now's the time for the kingdom to be installed, right? But how does, how does Jesus respond to them in Acts 1? He says, no one knows the time. And we say, what does that mean? And what we rightly recognize is that the coming of, of the Lord Jesus is divided into two. The first where he has come, where he has lived and died and risen again so that our sins are forgiven, so that we are purified, so that our thinking, our understanding of who God is can be made right. Not comprehensive, but, but what we know is, is good and right. So that our worship can be restored and so that we are enabled by God's spirit to follow him. That is at his first coming. And we see at his second coming that all of the rest of the promises, that final judgment will come, that, that the Lord will in time and space, just as he has redeemed us, so also in time and space will act as a witness against those who practice iniquity. 
So what do we do? Well, it's right here in Acts, right? When, when they, they say to, to him, uh, Lord, is, is now the time when you're going to restore your kingdom? And he says, no. He then follows that statement with this. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. That is to say, and as, as I was working through this text, even through this morning, one of the things that, that you see is the Lord promised a messenger he promised Elijah to come. And we understand that's John the Baptist. But that's not the only messenger that goes ahead of the Lord. All of us. All of us, right? It is what, he, it is what he's saying. You will be my witnesses. As you go in about the world, you will be my witnesses. Proclaiming the truth. So as we, God's people, Live in this reality where the Lord has redeemed us. Our understanding, our worship, our practice, all of us is redeemed. As we live in that world, as we look for his return, when all will be made right, let us go forth. Following the Lord wherever he leads, yes. But let us go forth preparing a way for the Lord in someone else's heart. How do we do that? The way that it's been done down through the ages. The Holy Spirit speaking through his word from person to person, right? This is in the book of Romans. You know, how will they know if no one preaches, right? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we as God's people, redeemed of the Lord, all of us redeemed, let us follow him, let us worship him, and let us, in the lives of others, prepare the way of the Lord. Amen.